We're up to uh, the church in Thyatira and as we've seen, every church has some similarities but also some differences. And uh, this, this is the longest of the letters, so really there's, there's actually probably two sermons worth in this, but don't, don't worry, I'll, I'll stick to our regular time. Uh, but as we have been doing, we'll begin by looking at the portrait of Jesus at the beginning, the promise at the end, see how they uh, work together and then seeing what that then means for the church uh, that Jesus is speaking to as well as to us. In the portrait then, at the start of this letter, Jesus is bringing together two key Old Testament passages. The first is from Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And see, that's also there in the promise at the end of the letter. So alongside Jesus highlighting his eyes like fire and his feet like bronze, he also calls himself here the Son of God. It's the only place in Revelation actually where this phrase appears. Now we need to avoid the simplistic thinking that says Jesus is the Son of God is exactly the same as saying Jesus is God, Jesus is divine. Now in Jesus' case, Son of God does include his full divinity, but it includes more than a claim to be God in the flesh. In its original setting, Psalm 2 was speaking of David and of his descendants and the Lord's promise to David that one of his descendants would build a house for his name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever, including the promise I will, uh, he, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now this promise was uh, immediately but only partially fulfilled by Solomon who built the temple. But this title, Son of God, was used figuratively of the Davidic kings and for centuries it was expected that eventually one of these kings would fulfil Psalm 2 by defeating Israel's enemies once and for all and be raised up to be the head of a Davidic dynasty that would rule over the nations. Now, not long after the Romans conquered the Jews in the first century BC, the Jews began to see for the first time that Psalm 2 spoke not just of another Davidic king, but the king, the Messiah, who would not only establish the kingdom, but who would reign forever. Or in other words, they began to see that it wasn't a Davidic line of kings that they should be looking for, but one king in the line of David who would do away with the need for a succession of kings because his reign would be eternal. So Jesus makes no bones about it. He is the one of whom Psalm 2 speaks, the Davidic king 
by the virtue of the fact that he's born of a woman, a literal descendant of David according to the flesh and established in his eternal reign by being raised from the dead, never to die again and seated by the Father in a position of absolute authority over all things. So even though Jesus is literally the Son of God, God the Son, it's not specifically what he's claiming here when he calls himself the Son of God. He's claiming here to be the Messiah with absolute authority over the nations. No matter how much they rage, no matter how much, how often they gather to conspire against God and his plan for the world, Jesus reigns over all. The second passage that he's referring to here is Daniel chapter 10. Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz round his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Jesus' messiahship is conveyed by these two aspects of his appearance. His eyes like fire and his feet like burnished bronze. Fire and bronze go together. Bronze was the first metal to be worked by human beings, or at least that's what archaeologists tell us. Uh, They have what they call the Bronze Age, which began, they say, around 4000 BC. Who knows what the actual dates were? But bronze was produced in the furnace so that it came out of the flames and its colour is reminiscent of the fire, of flames. But also its hardness and its resistance to corrosion meant that it could be polished or burnished to a high shine. So the first mirrors were made of bronze. Thyatira, incidentally, was well known for its industry of smelting and trading bronze. So the people there would have been familiar with its qualities. So Jesus' feet of bronze, they're the feet of a warrior king wearing his army, his army, he wearing his armour, sorry. Not just, it's armour that's not just for protection in battle, it's armour that displays his glory. It's a picture not so much of a soldier about to go into battle, but someone who has returned victorious from battle. It's a polished armour that's reserved for ceremonial use. It's armour that would be worn by a king in his triumphal procession as he received the praise and accolades of his people because of his victory. So this is Jesus who has returned from the battle against sin and death and the devil at the cross and has been raised up victorious, the conquering king, not only ready to to receive all the honour and glory he deserves, but also to share with his people all the spoils and treasures of his victory. Being victorious also gives him the authority to judge. As we've seen, his eyes of fire are the eyes that see all things. 
as we were told in verse 23, I am he who searches the mind and the heart. So this takes us then to the promise at the end of the letter. See this? It's really an astounding, jaw-dropping statement in which Psalm 2 is applied not only to Christ, but to us. Have you ever considered this, that part of what it means to be a Christian is to have authority over the nations and to rule them with an iron rod? It's what Jesus promises us. We know that we share Christ's victory over sin and death and the devil, united with him in his death and resurrection, but this also means we share with him in his reign. We've been raised up with him and seated with him in Christ, in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 says, so that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So his immeasurable grace and kindness to us will be shown not just in saving us from sin and death, but in seating us alongside him so that all that he has received from the Father becomes ours too, including the status given to humanity in creation that was lost in the fall to be rulers of the world, to have dominion over all the other creatures. Now what that will look like in detail and how the nations will be part of the renewed humanity and the new heavens and earth, we're not actually told precisely. We'll have to wait and see. But we can say that there will be represented in the new creation people of every nation, people, tribe and tongue. The beautiful array and diversity of humanity united not in all being the same but united in giving glory to God and within that will be still hierarchies and rulers and authorities uh, under Christ. Now the most common way that the Bible describes our union with Christ and our sharing in his reign is marriage. Christ's marriage to the church is the way in which we're brought into his family. Because we're the bride of the son, we may call his father our father. We may have his spirit dwell personally in us. By marrying us to himself, Jesus crowns us and he seats us at his side as he rules over the kingdom. So we receive not only all of the benefits that he's received from the Father, but even better, we receive him. He gives himself to us in marriage. And that's what's conveyed in that last verse there, that he will give us the morning star. Now this image also conveys the idea of kingship. 
As ancient people believed that stars represented earthly powers, which is why the Magi interpreted the new star that appeared as a sign of a new king being born. The morning star was the name given to one of the brightest stars in the sky, which I think we now know is Venus, I think. So bright, you may have observed this if you're up early enough, so bright that it's the last star to remain in the sky as the sun is rising and all the other stars have vanished. So it spoke to the people of the ancient world of a great king whose reign will outlast all the others. So we can imagine how any earthly king would want to claim the title the morning star. Well, in Revelation 22:16, Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So when Jesus says, I will give you the morning star, what's he saying? I'm the morning star, I will give you myself. The one who conquers is guaranteed to be a member of the bride of Christ, joined in indissoluble marriage to the victorious king with his eyes of fire and his feet of burnished bronze. Now why did the Christians in Thyatira need to hear this? Well, it was because some of them were joining themselves to another person who claimed their loyalty. They were in danger of committing adultery against their true husband, the reigning Jesus. Like the church in Pergamum, the Thyatirans, we're told, were being led into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. The difference is that in Pergamum, Jesus, uh, remember, used Balaam to describe what was happening. Here, he uses Jezebel. Now, it's probably unlikely that there was actually a woman, at least in the church in Thyatira, called Jezebel. No self-respecting Jewish parents would even consider naming their daughter after one of the most evil women in their scriptures. And if there were any Gentiles with that name, it's pretty likely that if they had become Christians, they would have changed their name because of that. There was, however, just outside the city of Thyatira, a shrine, a shrine of a prophetess, known as the Shrine of the Simbathi. This was a number of, one of a number of shrines across the, uh, the Greek world where people could come to the woman based there who claimed to have access to the gods and who could impart their secret knowledge. Now, these women were known as Sibyls. So, again, if you're thinking of naming your daughter Sibyl, Maybe think again once you know what it means. The word means divine counsel. So, this looks like a bit of a play on words. Thyatira had their Sibyl, but in fact Jesus says she's a Jezebel. 
To see why he does this, we need to go back again to the Old Testament. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. He ruled the northern kingdom of Israel from around 870 to 850 BC. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess and her marriage to Ahab would have been part of a treaty between the two nations. But Jezebel brought her religion with her, the worship of Baal and of Asherah. Now, Baal is the Canaanite title for God. It means Lord or Master. And uh, Baal was thought to be in charge of the weather, providing rain for crops. But Baal also demanded human sacrifice. Asherah was a mother goddess, a goddess of fertility, often associated with sacred trees. So if you remember back to when we looked at Ephesus with the worship of Artemis, there are some distorted echoes there of Eden, trees and a woman and fertility. Now the worship of Asherah involved temple prostitutes. Now you probably know the famous story of Elijah's conquest, his contest, sorry, with the prophets of Baal. There were 450 prophets of Baal and there were also 400 prophets of Asherah there. And the Lord already, through Elijah, had shut off the rain, showing that he, not Baal, is in control of the weather. Then he cared for a widow and he raised the widow's son from the dead, showing that he, not Asherah, was the one who provided children and cared for mothers. Then he showed himself to be the one true God over all by sending fire from heaven when the prophets of Baal couldn't get any response from their God. So the false prophets were executed and in retaliation, Queen Jezebel set out to destroy Elijah because he'd exposed her gods as a sham. But both Ahab and Jezebel eventually faced God's judgment. Ahab was killed in battle and Jezebel was thrown from a high window by her own servants and her body was eaten by wild dogs and then eventually all of her children were killed. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Well, she was simply receiving from the hand of God the same measure of what she had dished out to others through her reign. So her fate was the fruit and the consequences of her idolatry. Now it's interesting to note that not long after the book of Revelation was written, including this letter, this fire shrine of the Simbathi disappears from the records of history. Archaeologists have no explanation for its sudden disappearance from the record. Or at least archaeologists who haven't read or believe the words of Jesus which tell us that both the prophetess and her children were struck dead by him. 
Again, does this sound harsh? It's not the image of the kind, gentle Jesus that we want to hold on to, is it? But we shouldn't miss the kindness that's there in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Now this this is years, if not decades, after the gospel first came to Thyatira. Acts 19 tells tells us that Paul was in Ephesus for two years and during that time the whole region of Asia Minor, including Thyatira, heard the word of the Lord. And that included then this prophetess and her followers. The gospel message is for everyone, not just a select few. It's not a message for the righteous and respectable and good people. It's the message for sinners and idolaters and yes, even witches and false prophets. So the kindness of God was shown in patience to this woman, giving her the same opportunity as everyone else to turn to him. But now, now that she had remained hard in her idolatry and her teaching was now infiltrating the church and bringing harm to his people, it was time for him as the shepherd to exercise his severity for the sake of his flock. Now, exactly what was the teaching of Jezebel? We don't know for sure. Jesus here describes it as the so-called deep things of Satan, which probably indicates that it was something to do with that imparting the secret hidden knowledge of the gods. But in the end, it's not actually the content of her teaching that's of primary concern to Jesus as much as the fruit of it. I think I'm up to the right passage. Yes, there it is. She was seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, what does that make you think? I'm guessing you may immediately be thinking when you hear that phrase in moral categories lifestyle choices, behaviours and laws that uh, tell us whether something is right and wrong. But before we go there, we need to see Jesus' words not through the moral framework but through a worship framework. As I said last week, the ideas of idolatry and adultery often go hand in hand throughout the scriptures. They're often used interchangeably because idolatry was essentially Israel being unfaithful to her true husband, the Lord. She was committing adultery with her preferred husbands, other gods. So the phrase here, sexual immorality, is actually code, in a sense, for idolatry. Now we see through the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, a marked contrast between idolatrous worship of false gods and true worship of the true God. Obviously at the heart of it is the object of our worship. 
and Paul addresses the core problem in Romans 1. He describes things on two levels. On one level, he's giving an account of what actually happened in Eden to the first, with the first man and woman. On a second level, he's describing how every human being since has walked in their footsteps. He says, although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See how the problem isn't that we stopped worshipping, but that we shifted our focus so that the object of our worship is the creature instead of the creator. Human beings are created to worship. A human who doesn't worship is a contradiction. There's no such thing. Every human being will look to someone or to something that they see as worthy of their adoration, something that will fulfil their desires and they will attribute to that person or thing the authority to then shape their thinking and their actions and to set the direction of their lives. So if this person is not the true and living God, it will always be something else. It's either the creator or the creature. See also that the nature of the person or the thing that we worship will shape what our worship looks like, which was there in verses 23 and 24. Worshipping and serving the creature naturally flows into impurity, into the dishonouring of our bodies amongst themselves. So the way in which we worship will be a reflection of the one whom we worship. And here's where the marked contrast lies between the false worship of idols and the true worship of God. Idolatrous worship is characterised by the physical, by the experiential, by the sensual because it's all about what I have to do to appease my God. So I will go to the temple and perform rituals that are very physical and very extreme hoping to get my God's attention and win their favour when they see the lengths that I go to demonstrate my piety. So the idols demanded things like self-harm, asceticism, temple prostitution, even human sacrifice. In exchange for me doing these things that degrade and dishonour my body, I expect the God to give me something in return, some sort of emotional, ecstatic or physical experience that will make me feel like I've stepped up to a higher spiritual plane. And I want to leave the temple feeling like I've fulfilled my duties to my God and so now my God will make my life better and give me the things I want. Better harvest, a fruitful womb, 
material prosperity, good health, good mental health, a successful career, good reputation, happiness and lots of pleasure without any regret. So it should be no surprise then that the idolatrous worship both in the Old Testament and in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament were characterised by these things, sexual immorality, eating food, sacrificed to idols, which was a gluttonous thing. And this described not just the general lifestyle of the people in the world, it described the nature of the worship that actually took place in these temples and shrines. Well, by stark contrast then, true worship through the Old and New Testaments is very different. See, I don't come bringing something or doing something to try and appease God or to bribe him to get his attention. There's nothing that I can do as a creature that will give him something he doesn't already have. I can't tell him anything that he doesn't already know. I can't change his mind about what he wants to do. I can't make him think differently about me than how he already does. Instead, I come to see and hear who he is and what he has done for me. In the Old Testament, a worshipper would come to the tabernacle and they would see the sacrifice burned up on the altar and they would know that God's mercy to them wasn't on the basis of their actions but that God had acted. God had chosen to divert the wrath that they deserved onto a substitute. The sacrifice was a visual message that gave a gospel declaration, your sins are forgiven. They would also hear the word of God proclaimed in his law that revealed both the nature of God to them and would tell them his good and perfect will that he sets them free to obey. And they would bring before the throne of God their prayers and requests with confidence because they knew that they didn't need to bribe him with gifts because his favour towards them in atoning for their sin meant that they can now come to him as a generous father who loves to give good things to his children. So they would leave the temple with a knowledge of the security of his grace and the words of the law of liberty ringing in their ears knowing what it means now to live a life that brings him glory, no longer serving themselves and their own desires, but loving him and loving their neighbour. In the New Testament, the principle's exactly the same. It just takes a different form. We come to see the sacrifice, not one happening before our eyes, but the one already completed in Jesus and represented in the bread and the cup. And we come to hear his word, the word of Christ that produces and grows faith in our hearts. And we come to pray to our Father whose throne has been opened up to us by Jesus.
Now, it shouldn't be a surprise then that we live in a society which, as the message of the Gospel is being more and more suppressed and marginalised, the fulfilment of physical, sensual desire is becoming more central and more celebrated. We should be praying for our brothers and sisters, especially in Sydney, in the coming weeks, as they are going to be, uh, the city, they're estimating 500,000 people visiting Sydney in this coming month for World Pride. And the Christians there are going to be uh, wondering, how do I respond to all of this? Everything that in the Bible would fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality in all of its different expressions is one by one being redefined. Firstly, as something that's not morally wrong and secondly, as something that is to be celebrated. So that anyone who thinks differently is not only old-fashioned and stern but are told that they are judgmental and hateful. So how are we as Christians and the church to respond to these trends? It's vitally important that we think carefully and prayerfully about this. And uh, it was really helpful Friday night, um, the material that Peter led us through uh, really laid a good foundation for this as well. So I encourage you to uh, go online to YouTube and watch the video of uh, Friday night session. But the church can reinforce that stereotype of judgmental bigots who take the higher moral ground if we try to approach and to address these trends purely on the level of morality, focusing only on the behaviour and lifestyles of people or thinking that we can reverse the trend by influencing politicians and others who shape the laws of the land. See, by doing that, we're targeting the fruit instead of the root of the problem, which we've seen is a matter of worship. It is true worship versus idolatry. So changing or restricting external behaviours isn't the solution. Changing the focus and object of our worship is. So in the end, if we genuinely want to see real change taking place in people's lives and in the community, we need to see it will only come as a result of proclaiming the Gospel and calling people to Jesus. Repentance and faith isn't, first of all, about turning from doing bad works to doing good works. That's just legalism. It's about turning from idols to serve the living and true God so that Jesus becomes the object of our hope, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1. It produces a worship that reflects him and honours him and then a lifestyle that gives him glory. And I've left my last page of notes on the pew. I'll just grab it. There it is.
So what is our message to someone who is engaged in sexual immorality, whatever shape or expression that may be? It shouldn't be, you need to change your lifestyle so that you will become acceptable to God and only then will God and us welcome you. It should be, your lifestyle is an indication of your broken relationship with God. So, come to Jesus. He is the one who can reconcile you to God and then you will be set free to live a life that not only honours him by obeying his word but will bring you peace and flourishing and the hope of eternal life. So see how Jesus doesn't call the five tyrants to activism. He says, I won't lay on you any other burden. It's not their job to fix the world or society or even the church. It wasn't the job of the Thyatiran Christians to somehow go out and battle against the shrine outside the city and somehow bring it down. Jesus has made it clear already, he is the one who disciplines and purifies his church and the one who is at work in the world. So he doesn't lay on us the burden of being ultimately responsible for the church or for the world. He simply says, hold fast to what you have. What do we have? Well, it's the word of life, the gospel of Jesus. We don't need the deep things of Satan or of anyone else because we've already been given the deep things of God in Jesus. There's nothing further, there's nothing deeper or more profound than this glorious mystery that's been opened up for us, not only so that we may know it, but that we may participate in the very life of God and then hold that message out, that message of hope to all those around us who are caught up in the destructive slavery of sin and death. So will we, as a church, will we, with God's help and in the power of the Spirit, hold fast to the Gospel entrusted to us as we look and wait for the return of Jesus? Let's pray that it will be so.